two names that God gives us in the Old Testament that um, are, are seen and revealed throughout all of the scriptures. And so there's going to be a lot of verses on the screen. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of instances where these names show up. And as we've been thinking over the last several weeks together, part of what we're trying to do is we're trying to see the names of God because His names reveal His character. You know what, Mikey? I keep pushing the button, and I have the receiver right here, dude. So can you run up here and grab this and then plug it in, and then it should work. User error. Somebody wasn't prepared for class. How about that? All right, so I, I'm not going to hit the button anymore until he gets back there. Thank you for being speedy there, young one. Uh, so names reveal character, and they reveal action. And in the revealing of God's names, we learn some things about his character and his actions. How about that? And the two names we're going to look at here this morning, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce because I'm pretty sure I'm not going to do it correctly. Um, so what we're going to do is we're just going to use the English translations of what these names mean from here on out. Um, but these names, these words, I should say, show up hundreds and hundreds of times. And as names for God, they show up each twice. And the, the second one shows up in the context of uh, a prophecy from the book of Jeremiah. The first shows up in the context of the law as the Lord is giving Israel his commandments and he's giving them commands to, to see. And we see God's character revealed in these names as we have of every name. But we also see and know and learn that names reveal action. And so as we turn our attention to Yahweh righteousness or the Lord is our righteousness and the Lord sanctifies we see the actions of God as well and I would just tell you that these two names probably more than any other name connect with God's character and his action in the revealing to us of who he is the Second one we'll look at, sanctification, that name for God, the Lord sanctifies. That word sanctification is translated elsewhere through the Old Testament and the New as, as, as holy. It's translated as consecrate. It, it, it is in some ways the summation of all of who God is and the central attribute to all of his character. That he is Holy. It's what the angels in Isaiah 6 were singing as Isaiah comes in and has this vision of the throne room where they're singing back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This, this declaration of God's holiness is what we see on 
display. And it is the central attribute to his character. And, and I would submit to you that, that all of the other attributes of God, all the other characteristics of God, all the other provisions that God makes, all the other names that God uses to reveal himself to us, is defined by his holiness. And so his love is understood as a perfectly holy love, because that's who he is. His provision is understood as a perfectly holy provision, because that's who he is. And then as we think through to righteousness, I think we see the action of God given a central attribute for us to unpack and think through in. And by that I mean all of the actions of God are righteous. They're all perfect. They're all just. They're all true all the time. And the actions of God are righteous and true and just and perfect because of God's holiness. And so these two are almost indistinguishable when we think about who God is. But there is some distinguishment as we think about what God does and then how you and I kind of hop in on the scene and interact with these things and these names as well, so I think it, it, it's, it, it's, it's okay for us to say that holiness is the central attribute defining God's character, and righteousness would be the central attribute defining God's actions. His actions are always right. His actions are always just. And so we see the character of God revealed in these actions. We see the, or the names. We see the actions of God revealed in these names. And then we continue to just come back to the fact that God's name is refuge and power. God's name is refuge and power. There's strength. There's security. There's protection. There's empowerment that comes. And a phrase that I gave you last week that I want to just try to unpack a little further with you this morning is this, that the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God has provided for us what could not be supplied by us and yet what he requires of us. This is the good news, that God requires something of us that we couldn't bring to the table. And God himself provides it then, and in doing so, provides what he requires. And we actually see this, I think, come to life even more vividly in these two names. Now, as we think through the word, we're going to start with righteousness. As we think through this word, as I said, this word shows up hundreds of times. It's just some 600 times. And this word can be used and is used at times to refer to the actions of people. It's used in the Psalms that way. It's used in the Proverbs that way. If you got the picture verse that was sent out via Facebook on Friday, that was one of the, that, that word showed up in Proverbs 10. Uh, we're talking about the righteous, my righteous deeds was the idea there. But I don't want us to think about the idea here of this word righteousness being applied to kind of the obedient things that I do. And that's how that word is used in and in describing people. So like David can talk about his righteous deeds or, or being acquitted according to his righteousness. And it's the same word, 
But what, what, what David means by that, and it gets used this way even in the New Testament, it's the idea of obedience. It's this idea that, that I'm walking in obedience to the Lord. And we would just use the words in today's world and in today's language as obedience. We might use it as maturity. Sometimes we use the word godly to describe people. I mean, not often are we using the word righteous to describe people that we know. But we use the word godly to describe them. We use the word obedient. We use the word faithful. We use the word mature. And it's kind of a, this, this, it's all describing the same thing. You're talking about somebody who, who loves the Lord and is seeking to follow the Lord with their choices. And in doing so, they just become more and more like Jesus. They are conformed more to his image. And there is, there's an example they set by what they do and who they are and how they live that can be and should rightly be followed. That's not exactly what we're going to be looking at this morning. What I want us to rather look at and consider is not how the word righteous is used throughout the Old Testament to describe different individuals who followed the Lord and sought to obey the Lord with their actions and choices, but rather the, the character of who the Lord is. Because I think in that we see this good news vividly portrayed. That God provides for us what could not be supplied by us, but yet what He requires of us. And so just thinking through who God is, there's the two references where the Lord is our righteousness appear. These are prophetic utterances. They speak to and prophesy of, in my opinion, the thousand-year reign and rule of Jesus on the earth. When there is the lion and the lamb dwelling together, and Isaiah and Jeremiah have a lot to say prophetically about that. And you have here just Jesus on the throne. And Jeremiah says that his name will be the Lord is our righteousness. And this is true just because this is who God is. And it's Moses in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 that is describing God. And he does so in this way, the rock, that would be a fun name to dig into. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Moses is describing who God is, and here righteousness is used as a descriptor of who God is. The word just is the English word that we get in our Bibles. And I would submit to you that this idea of, of righteousness is, it is and strikes at the heart and, and the epitome of who God is and what He does. And obviously His actions flowing from His character and His character being that of pure and unadulterated holiness, his actions coming from that. This is who he is. And the psalmists give us some things to reflect on. We learn in Psalm 9 that the Lord sits enthroned forever. That he's established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with up. Rightness. This is the epitome of who God is, that there's a perfection to God. There's a way of understanding who God is that needs to be understood in unadulterated perfection. 
justice, righteousness, and try to unpack and maybe illustrate this for us this morning. I, I know I've, I've done this before. I think it's been a few years, and so I'm going to go back to that well because I just think it's a really good illustration for us to just kind of visually picture this. But I, I think we could say like, like, like this is the epitome of who God is in the sense of a clear jar of liquid. There's nothing foul in there. There's no sin in there. There's no blemish. There's no stain in there. The epitome of who God is, is this perfect perfection that comes and flows out of His holiness. We read that Jesus will uphold this kingdom that He'll establish with justice and righteousness. And this is true because this is who He is. The epitome of God is righteousness flowing from His holiness. But there's not a single action of God that has ever been sinful or ever been anything but perfect or just or holy because that's who God is. But I would submit to you, if that's the epitome of who God is, it's the epitome of who we are not. And the New Testament gives us some really clear ways of understanding this. Paul, quoting Psalm 14, says, There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. You can see the contrast there between who God is and who we are. God is righteous. All of His judgments are righteous. All of His actions are righteous. Jesus will establish His throne in perfect righteousness and justice. He is the holy, righteous one. And you and I are the exact opposite. And oftentimes we have, we have maybe an understanding of the fact that this is who God is. But then we actually think that this is who we are. And the New Testament unpacks something very, very different for us and that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus said it this way. Again, the idea of righteousness comes back into the forefront. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is trying to get those listening to him to understand that they needed to be better than the best people they knew. That's what he's saying here. These scribes and Pharisees were the most religious people there were, the most piously devoted people to obedience of the law that there was. They made laws to keep themselves away from the laws, and they made laws to keep themselves away from those laws, and they, they just tried to stay so far away from breaking what God had revealed as His law. And Jesus says, okay, those people, you got to be better than them. And His point in doing so was to lead everybody there to go, holy smokes, I got no shot. Because my righteousness is never going to exceed theirs. But then Matthew 5 crescendos forward to verse 48 where Jesus just doesn't then pull any punches and he doesn't mince any words. And now the, the scribes and Pharisees get lumped in as well. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is 
perfect. See, there's something about God and the epitome of who He is and His holiness and His righteousness. That, that, that is the kind of the central definition of who He is. And it's the exact opposite of who we are. And yet, it's the exact thing that we need if we're ever going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we often think, perhaps if you've been around church, somebody's told you that you're a sinner for a while and you might not be prone to think this. But the idea that there's goodness in us inherently is, is a pretty widespread prevailing opinion throughout the world. And it's the seeds and kind of the root of the philosophy of humanism that we're, we're just innately good. And if we can somehow kind of tap into our goodness, that we can solve what ails us. But the Bible paints and portrays an entirely different picture because we are told in Romans that there's no one righteous. There's not one for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The, the better, more accurate picture of who we are is not the clear jar like God, but the, the jar that's been stained because of sin. And Isaiah in chapter 2 even says that, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. But see, the good news of the gospel is that God provides for us what could not be supplied by us, and yet what He requires of us. So, so if the requirement is that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and yet we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we've got a problem. And the good news of the gospel is that God provides for us what could not be supplied by us, but yet what he requires of us. And see, and left to our own, what we end up trying to do, and I think you can see this kind of played itself out through the world and different cultures, maybe people that you know directly, is that we, we look and we go, yeah, okay, there, there's, there's some stuff in there. I'll, granted, I'll give you that. But we just kind of start reaching in, trying to take the stuff out ourselves. Or we find ways to maybe add what we have somehow defined as good things to the jar to somehow counteract, overrule what's in the jar. But the good news of the gospel is that God provides for us what could not be supplied by us. Like, our problem is that in us exists sin. And God can't exist in the presence of sin. We've got a big problem. But He provides for us what we can't supply for ourselves. And He does it without ever, ever lowering the bar. And he does it by sending his son. And so it's in the book again of Isaiah in chapter 53 verse 11 where we read about this suffering servant whose name is Jesus. And Isaiah writes, out of the anguish of his soul, Jesus shall see and be satisfied. By Jesus' knowledge shall the righteous one, there's that word, 
my servant make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That the many will be counted righteous, that something will be provided for them, that they could not supply for themselves, but yet what God requires. Perhaps it gets a little clear in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that we might, we might receive something, that something might be provided for us that could not be supplied by us, and yet what was required of us. And Paul tells us even further in Philippians chapter 3 that this righteousness is not found in obedience to the law. It's found through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on See, the good news of the gospel is that God has provided for us in Jesus what he requires of us that could not be supplied by us. Paul said this way in Romans 8, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of what Jesus has done. And what happens is that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we receive the righteousness of God. And though our sins were like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That now positionally, because of our faith in Jesus, we are this because of who He is. Not because of anything we've done. And This is the good news of the gospel, that for those who trust in Jesus, God provides for us what could not be supplied by us, and yet what He requires of us. And he gives us this gift of righteousness. It's been referred to as an alien righteousness. It's foreign to who we are. It can't be found in us. It has to be given to us. It has to be accounted or credited to us, as Isaiah said. And it happens when we trust in Jesus Christ. See, and in the good news of the gospel and this provision that God has made is not just the payment for sin. Jesus does that. But he credits us with his perfect obedience as well. And the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God has provided for us what could not be supplied by us and yet what he requires of us. Because this is who he is. He is Yahweh, our righteousness. 
Now, I just want to show you just briefly the, kind of a picture of, of this, the, the prophecy in Jeremiah. We're not going to go there. We're not going to touch on it. But the idea is, is that, that the righteousness of Jesus will kind of pervade and, and, and roll throughout because that's who he is. And so we can just kind of see this and picture this and portray this as all of this vanishing. And there will be one day, Revelation 21 and 22 tells us, where there will be no more sin, sorrow, sickness. Because the conquering king will have conquered everything. And the Lord gives us this righteousness when we trust in Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel is that God provides for us which, what could not be supplied by us. And yet what he requires of us. And it just it's 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 worth asking. That as you think about what would what would justify you before the Lord, is it is it the free gift that God supplies in his son? Or is it are you trying to just change your cup all by yourself? Just trying to get in there and get some of the gunk out and maybe if we can strain it a little bit or find a filter to maybe pass some things through or change this or that or the other thing. Or maybe if I add enough good stuff to the jar, then the bad stuff will, will at the very least be, be outweighed. We can't supply this righteousness that we need. It's not found in church attendance, it's not found in giving, it's not found in, in taking communion, it's not found in the baptismal tank, it's not found in any good thing that could be done, however you define whatever that good thing might be. It's only found in and through faith in Jesus Christ. And whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And this is what takes place when we begin our relationship with the Lord, that we, we positionally are declared righteous. When God sees us as those who have trusted in Jesus, He sees us with the righteousness of Christ. It's the theological word justification. And that, that begins us now on this lifelong journey, however the length of that life is, of being made more and more like Jesus. The word we use to describe that is sanctification. And here we have our second word. This word shows up over 700 times throughout the Old Testament. It shows up a whole bunch in the New as well. It's the idea of, of, of being set apart. It's the idea of something being made holy. And we can, we can see this word being used um, in, in a couple different places here in Exodus 31, 13 and in Leviticus 20, verses 7 and 8, there's a command given for you or for the Israelites to be holy, but that command is reasserted by Peter 
specifically, the idea of sanctification, the idea of you and I living lives that, 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 that declare and demonstrate that we know Jesus, that we love Jesus, that we want to walk in obedience to Jesus, is all throughout the New Testament. But this, uh, this word of sanctification, similar to that of justness or righteousness, is used to at some point describe people. It's used to describe things that have been set apart, things that have been declared to be holy. He uses, the Lord does this word holy, this word sanctification, set apart, to talk about the Sabbath there in Genesis 2. God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy. God set apart that day. That's different than any other day. And then he told the nation of Israel that they needed to set apart that day. And have that day be different than any other day. And that's one of the instances where we find our word and name for God. Is in that context where Moses is given the instruction to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you. It's not a miraculous sign. There's nothing miraculous about the Israelites not working on sundown from Friday to sundown from Saturday. But it was a sign. It demonstrated something. It it spoke to something. There was information communicated. It was that they understood who they were and who God was and were willing to walk in obedience to Him. And He ends this command to say, know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. In Leviticus 20, verses 7 and 8, we're given a look into, again, another portion of the law Israel is given. And here, they're commanded to consecrate or sanctify themselves. The word consecrate at the beginning is the exact same word as sanctifies at the end. Consecrate yourselves, therefore be holy, for I the Lord, I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And, and here's one of the things that I just want us to see again, because it speaks to the gospel and what God does in us as we follow Him, after we've trusted in Him. The same good news is there that what God requires of us. He provides for us, even though it can't be supplied by us. And so the good news of the gospel is that what God requires of us that could not be supplied by us, He provides for us. And we see this, the seeds of this, even back in the nation of Israel's history being true, that the command for them was to set themselves apart as holy. And they were to do some things. But it's actually the Lord who actually does the things in and through them. The New Testament helps us kind of unpack some of these truths a little further. And Paul in Philippians 2 writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The idea inherent in this passage is the idea of sanctification. The reason I chose these verses because you see that provision being made, however. The command for you and I to do something is absolutely present in the text. But we're also told where the energy comes from our, or for our 
obedience to fulfill what God has required. For it is God who works in you. That word works there is where we get our English word energy from. Every time I see this passage, I think of the Energizer bunny in Christmas commercials. For whatever reason, the company Energizer always put that bunny out at Christmas time. And it might have been because we all got gifts at Christmas that didn't have batteries in them. And so the battery company wanted to remind all of us that we needed to buy batteries for the gifts. And they wanted them to be Energizer Clearly, and so the bunny rolling around, beating the drum with the battery in its back. For whatever reason, my mind goes there that the Holy Spirit's the battery, the energy. The command to you and I is to work out our salvation. The command to be holy because the Lord is holy, to be sanctified. I mean, this, is, this is a a prevailing New Testament theme. But it is not that you and I just somehow find in ourselves the strength we need to go and do it. Rather, it's we find in Christ and through His Spirit the strength we need to go and do it. And like, that's a bit conceptual and uh, so I want to use the vacuum to try to illustrate this for you. And this illustration is going to break down. And no, nobody forgot to put the vacuum away on Friday. Uh, it was supposed to be there. And like this illustration is going to break down at some point. So let's just let's be kind of gracious to each other in this. But, but just I, I want us to, to think of perhaps our lives as a house. And, and if your house is like my house, you've got some places that probably need vacuumed. Some places that may not be vacuumed nearly as frequently as maybe they should be vacuumed. Maybe you just got a pile of something right in the middle of the floor kind of for everybody to see. Regardless of whatever it might be. But I think what, I think what sanctification is, is, it's the Holy Spirit helping us identify the places to vacuum. And it's... Through God's word, him revealing to us that, oh, in that corner, we got some goldfish that have been maybe hanging around since the kids were little, and they're all crunched and ground into the carpet, and, and we need to go to that corner, and we need to, need to take the vacuum, and we need, to, we need to go sweep that up. In God's word, Jesus tells us in John 17, verse 17, is what sanctifies us. And His Spirit gives us the power we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And the good news of the gospel is, is that what God requires of us, holiness, as Peter says, I mean, it's not any different for the Old Testament saying as it is for the New Testament saying, be holy for I am holy. That's a tall task. What God requires for us that cannot be supplied by us he provides for us. You see, sometimes I think you and I, rather than taking the vacuum to the corner, we think of sanctification this way. We go to the corner. We start trying to get all the crumbs picked up. We try in our own strength to provide for ourselves what God himself has told us we can't supply and only he can provide. And we go in our own strength. 
We try to get the mess cleaned up. Or sometimes we step back and we go, hey, Holy Spirit, there's a mess in that corner. You should probably take the vacuum back there and turn it on. I'll just kind of hang out here while you do your thing. And this, I don't know if it's attention. It's absolutely, in my opinion, part of what the scriptures just tell us living for the Lord looks like. Is that as we obey the commands to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, the energy to do that is from God himself. And in our own strength, we're going to try and we're going to fail. But in his strength, we can, we can take the vacuum to the corner and we can turn it on. And those crumbs can get cleaned up. Because it's the Lord who sanctifies. It's the Lord who makes righteous. It's the Lord who one day will glorify us. And we don't often think so much about controlling that because we're going to be dead. But the same thing is true from the moment of our salvation through the way we live and to even what happens after we die. It is all a work of God. So just as we think through just kind of what that looks like this afternoon and tomorrow. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hedge my bet that you're able to come up with like the big things in your life on your own that may need the vacuum cleaner looked at. I'm just going to tell you what this pursuit of holiness has kind of looked like in my world. It's looked like getting in the car and sensing the Holy Spirit say, don't turn on the radio, let's talk. And I think that's just as much a pursuit of holiness as anything else. Because it's being made more into the image of Jesus. It's spending time with the Spirit of Jesus. It's spending time thinking through Who's hurting and needs prayed for? What in my life is a mess that afternoon that needs confessed and repented of? I think sometimes we, we, we can rightly define but incorrectly limit holiness to avoiding the big sins. Let's, let's just be clear. like They should be avoided. But every one of our choices should get filtered through the grid of, does this bring Jesus glory? Does this walk in holiness? And in my world, as little as turning the radio off and praying is just something, saying yes to time in God's word. We're sanctified by the word of truth. And it's his word that helps us see where the corners are that have some crumbs in them or what the pile in the middle of the floor is that needs picked up. You might not be a morning person and if you're not, don't do morning devotions. Free yourself from that guilt. You don't have to wake up early if you're not an early riser. I had a professor in college tell me that he gave Jesus 1.30 to 2 o'clock in the afternoon every day. 
because that's when he was at his best. Now, at 1.30 in the afternoon, I'm trying to fight off a desire to go to sleep. That is not when I'm at my best. I'm pretty good at about 5.30 in the morning. So that's when I do it. The point is that time doesn't matter. Time spent does. And as we spend time with God in his word, as he reveals to us the areas in our lives that are not in conformity with what he would have as, as the scriptures, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, reveal and instruct and correct and train by the power of the Holy Spirit, we go to work. We don't go to work because we're able to do the work. We go to work because he empowers us to do the work. And we don't stand back and say to the vacuum, there you go, that corner's a mess. Nor do we run over there ourselves and leave the vacuum behind. It's the Lord who sanctifies. It's the Lord who declares and makes righteous. And the good news of the gospel is that what God requires of us that could not be supplied by us is what he provides for us in his son Jesus. Would you pray? And we'll close in song. Well, God, we pray that you'd help us to walk in that holiness. We ask that you'd be gracious to us in revealing the areas in our lives where we got some crumbs in the corner. And rather than trying to find the strength in and of ourselves, within ourselves, to, to take care of that, that we would find our strength in you. So God, we, we say and we sing that we need you. Every hour, every minute, every second, we need you. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.